So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Mark chapter 2. We'll be in verses 13 to 22. So Mark chapter 2, and we'll be in verses 13 to 22. And so I know many of us, um, as we have gathered as a church and we're still getting to know each other, got to give you guys one thing about me. Um, I am a huge sports fan. Like, I'm a huge sports fan. ESPN app on my phone. I probably go to it a couple of times a day just to see what's going on in the, the world of sports. And as I'm a sports fan, one of the things that I really love is, like, man, players who change the game. Like, players who transcend the game. You know, um, in recent weeks, the past five or six weeks or so, there's been a well, five weeks, it's been a 10-part documentary on The Last Dance, talking about the Chicago Bulls and, um, yeah, their, their last year together, and it is amazing to watch. You know, as you see Michael Jordan, and you, if you didn't grow up watching him, you get to see him as being the best player that he is and just shows that he really is the GOAT. You see, Jordan, he changed the game of basketball. But truth be told, you know, my favorite player uh, is Steph Curry. You know, this six foot three point guard, he also, like Jordan, I mean, he ain't the GOAT, but he has also changed the game of basketball. Like, when you think about it, you know, the game of basketball, it was big on dunks and jump shots until this little six foot three guard comes in and Steph becomes Steph. And he changed the game by his three point shooting ability. Like, to the point to where the game is adopted. It has changed to where most teams now are shooting more threes than ever because of what he has done. You see, the typical point guard, they would be a facilitator, but that ain't Steph. He's a scorer, and he has changed the game. And friends, in our passage this morning, what we're going to see is that Jesus has changed the game. You see, he doesn't necessarily go along with the practices of the, tradition, the traditional practices of these religious leaders of the day. But rather, we see him changing the game as he is fellowshipping and calling sinners, and he is changing the game as, game as he and his disciples, they feast rather than fast. You see, he is unlike the religious leaders because he is God in the flesh. He is the Son of God. And he came to change the game, so to speak. And so, Mark chapter 2, verses 13 to 22, please stand for the reading of God's word. Jesus went out again beside the sea. The whole crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. Then passing by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the toll booth, And he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. While he was reclining at the table in Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who were following him. When the scribes who were Pharisees saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard this, he told them, It is not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. People came and asked him, why do John's disciples and the Pharisees' disciples fast, 
but your disciples do not fast. Jesus said to them, The wedding guests cannot fast while the groom is with them, can they? As long as they have the groom with them, they cannot fast. But the time will come when the groom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast on that day. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new patch pulls away from the old cloth, and a worse tear is made. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost as well as the skins. No new wine is put into fresh wineskins. You may be seated. And so this morning in our passage, we're going to see two scenes. The first scene that we will see is that Jesus calls and fellowships with sinners. And then the second scene that we will see is that Jesus and his disciples, they feast rather than fast. And so we see scene number one, Jesus calls and fellowships with sinners. Scene number two, Jesus and his disciples, they feast rather than fast. And so first point, Jesus calls and fellowships with sinners. Look at verse 13. It says, Jesus went out again beside the sea. And so after Jesus, he performed the, uh, the mighty acts in the previous section, he goes out again. And this is, this is pretty normal for Jesus. See, after Jesus, he performs a mighty act. What we see is that he would retreat. And he does this in chapter 1, verse 45. He does it in chapter 3, verse 7, and chapter 3, verse 13. But then we also see that as he retreated, as he went beside the sea, the whole crowd was coming to him. You see, during his earthly ministry, Jesus was a very, he was very popular to the point to wherever he went, the crowd just went with him. You know, like a famous star who uh, the paparazzi are always coming as soon as he steps into the public. Well, in the same way, when Jesus goes out, everyone just wants to be around him. They want to hear him teach. They want to see him perform mighty acts. And so what does Jesus do as the crowd comes? He takes advantage of another opportunity to teach the gospel. And it says that, and he was teaching them. You see, Jesus, he... Teaching was essential to the ministry of Jesus. You see, he performed many mighty acts which authenticated the very message that he taught them. And as he is teaching, what he does is he is teaching the gospel. You see, in the book of Mark, Mark goes in explicit details about many mighty acts of Jesus, but don't miss the fact that Mark is constantly making known that Jesus was always teaching because it was essential to his ministry. Verse 14, it says, Then passing by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the toll booth. And so Jesus, he went by and he saw a person named Levi. In Matthew's gospel, uh, we see that Levi's name is also referred to as Matthew. And so what's going on here? What's happening? Did Matthew actually correct Mark in saying that, no, his name ain't Levi, but his name is really Matthew? No, that's not exactly what's happening. What's happening here is that, you know, um, the book of Ma- in the book of Matthew, Matthew is his Greek name, his name in the Greek, whereas Levi is his Hebrew name. And so that's why in this text and in the Gospel of Luke, you see Levi, but in the Gospel of Matthew, you see Matthew. And then we see that he was a tax collector because he was sitting at the toll booth. 
And so he's a Jewish tax collector for Herod Antipas, and he collected taxes for the Roman government. And, you know, it was common during this time that uh, it was common for tax collectors to actually charge citizens more than the actual tax. You see, they would pocket that very tax, and that was the reason why tax collectors were really despised. You know, the Jews couldn't stand tax collectors, and especially if you're a Jewish tax collector. You're a Jewish tax collector, they would see you as a traitor. You are working for the Roman government, and you are taking away more money that, that should be given through the taxes. And so the Jews, they despised the tax collectors. They were treated as outcasts, seen as traitors, like, um, you know, like a spy who would become a mole. You know, a spy, they'd be in another country, and then, you know, they would flip-flop their allegiance to one country and uh, begin to pledge their allegiance to an enemy of their, their home country. They would be a mole, and so they would leak highly classified information, betraying their very own country. And the moment that this mole was found out, you know, you would be despised greatly. They would, try to, uh, they would try to arrest you and throw you in prison. You see, that's how much these, uh, this Jewish tax collector and the Jewish tax collectors were despised. They were seen as traitors. And they were despised to the point to where they couldn't even serve as a judge or witness in court. They were despised to the point to where their family would be seen as a disgrace because one of the family members is a Jewish tax collector. But look what Jesus does. It says that he said to him, follow me. You see, such actions would confound everyone because a despised tax collector has been called to follow Jesus. Friends, what a display of grace. You see, Levi's past sins and present reputation didn't keep Jesus from calling him. And some of us, we may think that our sins or we have so much dirt and we have so much sins that, that Jesus wouldn't even come, want to come near us, that he wouldn't want anything to do with us. And friends, that is the farthest thing from the truth. Because the Lord Jesus, he came to save sinners. As we see later on in the passage, he came to call sinners. And he does this not because Sinners are worthy to be called, but he does this because he is gracious, because he is merciful. And in this call to follow Jesus, it is very similar to the call that Jesus gave to the fishermen in chapter 1. And the Greek word for the word follow is in the present active imperative tense, meaning this is an, an authoritative call, a call that's given as a command. And it's a call to follow him and to keep following him all of his days. And the reason that Jesus can make this command is because of who Jesus is. Because he is the king. He has the authority and he brings the kingdom. Let's see how Levi responded. It says that, and he got up and followed him. You see, Levi, he forsook his career and followed the Lord Jesus. And what this does is this speaks to the greatness of who Jesus is. That Jesus, it is, he is worthy for Matthew or Levi to count the costs and forsake his job, 
forsake the prophets, forsake his money, and follow the Lord Christ all of his days. Because Jesus is great. Because Jesus is greater. You see, the Lord Jesus, he is worthy of our total allegiance. And friends, Levi, he followed the Lord Jesus all of his days. And the way we know this is because he was an apostle. And then he also wrote the gospel according to Matthew. Look at verse 15. It says, While he was reclining at the table in Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with Jesus and his disciples. You see, later on, after Levi was called, what he did is that he invited Jesus and the disciples over to his crib. You know, he began to be like, hey, man, come to the house. And so he opens the doors of his crib and has this, uh, yeah, has them over. And what we see is that we see sinners and tax collectors are there in the house along with Jesus and the disciples. You see, there's a high probability that Levi end up telling his boys about Jesus, his fellow tax collectors and, and other sinners. Man, you, you got to come and hear about this one, this, this king. And so he has him over. And it says that, that Jesus, he is reclining at the table. What this is signifying and conveying is that Jesus, though they're in Levi's house, Jesus is actually the host of this feast. And so picture the scene. Jesus, his disciples, and you have feasting with sinners and tax collectors. And Mark is making it abundantly clear that sinners and tax collectors are there, that they are present. And how do we know he makes it abundantly clear? He says it three times in two verses, that sinners and tax collectors are present eating with Jesus. And as we think about sinners and tax collectors, um, real quick about sinners here, when he's talking about sinners, it's not necessarily talking about a group of people who are marked by or characterized by a particular sin. Rather, they receive the label of sinners because of the Pharisees. You see, the Pharisees, the, yeah, see, the Pharisees, they regarded these people as inferior because these sinners had no interest in the scribal tradition. They didn't try to live according to the standards of the Pharisees, so they were considered outcasts like the tax collectors. So they were lumped together as sinners and tax collectors. But what we see is that these very ones who are considered outcasts by the Pharisees are the very ones whom Jesus and his disciples are feasting with, having a meal with. And friends, when we talk about feasting in this, cult, in this culture, in this context, it is completely different than like a casual meal. You see, what having a meal, to get, having a meal together, what it conveyed was trust, an intimate relationship, fellowship. And so what we see in this passage is that these sinners and tax collectors are having fellowship with the Lord Jesus. And the reason that they are having fellowship with the Lord Jesus is because their sins are forgiven. And the reason that their sins are forgiven is because they have trusted in Jesus Christ. They have repented of their sins and believed the gospel. And some of you may wonder, how is it, how do you know this? Well, the very next line it says, for there were many who were following him. And so they heard the message and they began to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And when it says that they were following him, faith is implicit here. You see, faith in Jesus comes with following Jesus. And so they became, they became his followers, and they got to feast with the Lord. And one thing, we can, uh, one thing in particular to note is you, if you read the Gospels, you will see that Jesus was constantly dining with sinners and tax collectors. You know, read through all four Gospels, you will see repeatedly that Jesus is dining with sinners and tax collectors. We see it in Luke 19 with Zacchaeus. We see it in Luke 15 um, where, with the, story, the, the parables of the prodigal son. is because he was dining with sinners and tax collectors, and the Pharisees began to question him, why is he doing this? And he dined with sinners and tax collectors so frequently that he was called a friend of sinners. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 19, And when he was labeled a friend of sinners, it was an insult. They were insulting him. One thing that's super important for us to see is that though Jesus, in the words of Rosaria Butterfield, though Jesus dined with sinners, he didn't sin with sinners. You see, he is the sinless one. He loved people. He spoke the truth in love. He had compassion. He was constantly calling people to repent and believe the gospel even these sinners and tax collectors. And friends, we should follow him in this very work. You see, we should befriend our non-Christian neighbors and, and use our homes like Levi as a means for ministry, being hospitable and evangelizing with the intent to lead our neighbors to Christ. You see, we should get to know our neighbors and love them. And part of loving them is sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ calling them to repent of their sins and trust in him. And as we befriend our neighbors, that doesn't mean that we endorse or participate in their sin. You see, we don't sin with them in order to win them, but rather we strive to build relationships with them, serve, pray for wisdom, pray for them and share Christ with them, and pray for their conversions so that the meals would soon become ones of fellowship with fellow followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, this, like this, this is fellowship right here as Jesus is dining with sinners and tax collectors. And what it does is it, it prefigures and anticipates and points to this feast of the Lamb in the last day when Christ returns, this eschatological feast where all repentant sinners would feast with the Lord Jesus Christ. And as sweet as this scene is, not everybody is happy to see Jesus feast with sinners and tax collectors. Look at verse 16. It says, When the scribes who were Pharisees saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? You see, the Pharisees, they weren't a part of the meal, but when they saw it happening, they were upset. They were indignant. They opposed Jesus. And friends, this is the first time that we see the Pharisees mentioned in Mark's gospel. And they are a religious group that arose during the intertestamental period, which means like between the testament, between the last prophet Malachi preaching and before the Lord Jesus came in, these Pharisees, they came on the scene during this time, what many people will call the silent years. 
And these Pharisees, they were devoted to the law and lived according to the scribal traditions that were passed down. But here in our passage, what we see is that the religious leaders, they are opposing Jesus. And this opposition is increasing. Because in the first section, in the previous section of chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, we see them question Jesus in their heart. But now what we see is that it's escalating to where they're questioning Jesus' disciples about what Jesus has done. And then later we're going to see them question Jesus and plot to kill him. And at the end of Mark's gospel, we're going to see is that they would hand Jesus over to Pilate and incite the crowd to scream for his crucifixion. But in this passage, we see that the opposition is increasing. And so they asked his disciples, why is he doing this? You see, the Pharisees, they didn't like the fact that Jesus was eating with sinners and tax collectors. Because according to their tradition, there was a distinction between the righteous and the wicked. You see, they viewed sinners and tax collectors as the wicked. And according to their practice, no teacher of the law should fellowship with those who are unlearned or lacks interest in the scribal traditions. And what we see is evident of their self-righteousness. You see, they're mad at Jesus because he is not going along with their traditions. But rather, he is changing the game. And friends, it is easy for us to look down upon the Pharisees. But the question for us is, man, do we respond like this? You know, when we see members of the church who befriend some people for the sake of the gospel, what is our first response? Is it prayer? Is it encouragement? Or is it frustration? Are we questioning why in our very own hearts? Why is he having them over? Why are they hanging out with them? Because if we're asking those questions, it may serve as an indication that we're self-righteous, that we're being self-righteous just like the Pharisees. And so they questioned Jesus' disciples why. But look at verse 17. It says, when Jesus heard this, he told them, it is not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. You see, they questioned Jesus' disciples, but, but Jesus steps into the conversation and spoke for himself. Like, I don't need my disciples to answer for me. I can answer for myself. And he silenced them with this common saying. You see, he says, no one needs, a, it is not those who are well who needs a doctor, but those who are sick. You see, one uh, sees a doctor based upon their condition. If you are well, you ain't going to the doctor. Unless it's time for the checkup. But if you're well, most times you ain't going to the doctor. However, if you're sick, if you're sick, you're going immediately. Like I remember um, back in Alexandria when, man, we found out that my son has a peanut allergy. We saw him begin to flare up and, and just um, all, it was crazy. It was crazy. I don't want to go into detail, but we saw the, this, this peanut allergy and we rushed to the ER. We wanted the doctors to treat him. Because of his sickness. We did not want him to die. And what Jesus is saying here is as he is using this medical language of the sick and the well, he's not referring to physical condition, but to the spiritual condition. And as, we, as he says this, we learn something about the Lord Jesus. 
You see, Jesus, he is the physician who came to heal and save sinners. You see, the tax collectors and the sinners, they are referred to as those who are sick. And he says that he came to call sinners. This is the group that he's talking to, whereas the Pharisees, they were those who were referred to as those who are well. They were the righteous. Well, at the same time, the reality is that the Pharisees were just as sick as the tax collectors and sinners. You see, they weren't righteous, but they were self-righteous. And they were spiritually blind. You see, the law, they're students of the law, and the law should have led them to see their need for the divine physician. It should have led them to see their need for saving, but rather they thought they were righteous through their keeping of the law. You see, they were sick just like the sinners and tax collectors, but they thought they were well. But Jesus said that he came to call sinners. He came to heal the sick and call sinners, which is who he's talking about. It says, and, those, and the sick and sinners are those who recognize their sickened spiritual condition. You see, they know that they are sinners, that they stand condemned before a holy and righteous God. They know that they are in need of saving, and they have trusted in Jesus Christ in order to be saved. You see, he calls them to repent and believe in him. And it is those very ones, the repentant sinners, they are the ones who will be ushered into the kingdom. You see, the kingdom is full of repentant sinners. They are those, we are those who will be brought in. Sinners who repent of our sins and believe in Jesus. And as he said that he came to call sinners, we also see the grace of God in the mission of Christ. You see, he doesn't just tell the sick to get well. But rather, he, he, he tells them that he came for them to get them well, to save them from their sins. You see, Jesus is not about helping those who can help themselves. He's about saving those who know that they cannot save themselves. And in fact, he came to save sinners. And, and this is what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. We say, behold, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. You see, and, and Jesus is still saving people. This is what he has done for us who are in Christ. You see, before we trusted in Jesus Christ, God opened our eyes that we may know that we are spiritually sick that we are dead in sin and we are deserving of his wrath and we are in need of saving. And he pointed us to his very own son who came to save sinners through his very death as he died on the cross for sin and resurrected from the grave. And by his grace, we repented and believed in Christ. And that is how he came. That is how he saves the sick, through shedding his very blood and resurrecting and granting the gifts of faith and repentance as he called us and by his grace we repented and believed you see friends jesus is the divine physician and friends we needed him when we first repented and believed and we need him just as much today as we then did back then when we first believed you see, by his grace, he has saved us, and yet we still struggle with sin. And so we're in need of his medicinal blood to cleanse us from our sins. 
Just like he being the divine physician, it's just like as we go to the doctor, we're feeling sick, we don't hide our symptoms. We tell our symptoms to the doctor so that we can be cured, so that he can treat us properly. Well, at the same time, as we struggle with sin, we are to go to the divine physician, that he may cleanse us and help us. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But see, not only is he the divine physician, but he has called his church to be the physician assistants. You see, we are to confess our sins, but we're also to share with one another how we are doing. We're to share with one another our spiritual condition. If we are struggling with sin, we aren't to conceal it, but we are to confess it to one another. That like physician assistants, we would treat it and point one another to the divine physician. And we do this by bearing one another's burdens, speaking the truth in love, reminding one another of the gospel, and pointing one another to Christ. You see, we are to not only confess our sins to the Lord Jesus, we're also to confess our sins to one another. James chapter 5 verse 16 says this, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. And so we go to the divine physician and we also go to the physician assistants, being the church. NBC, Friends, how are you doing in this? You know, we confessed our sins when we first believed, but how are we doing in continuously confessing our sins? Not only to the Lord, but how are we doing in confessing our sins to one another? You see, because Jesus being the divine physician, it should make it easier for us to confess our sins to him. Because he cures, he cleanses, and he gives his church to help one another and remind one another. So it should also make it easier for us to confess our sins to each other. And friends, if you are here and you know yourself to not be a Christian, I am glad you're here, and I want you to know that this is the Lord Jesus, that he came to save sinners. And friends, like us, like how we were before we repented and believed, you are spiritually sick, and you are in need of saving. There's no medicine out there that can cure you of your sin. There's no medicine out there that can keep you from experiencing the wrath of God that you rightfully deserved. The only medicine is the Lord Jesus Christ, repenting of your sins and trusting in him for salvation. For when you do that, you'll be saved. You'll be delivered from the wrath of God. You'll be adopted into his family, and you will be a friend of the king. And if you want to talk more, you can talk to any of the members after service. And so we've seen that Jesus, he calls in fellowships with sinners. But now we will also see that Jesus and his disciples, they, they feast rather than fast. Look at verse 18. It says, Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and asked him, Why do John's disciples and the Pharisees' disciples fast, but your disciples do not fast? And so what we see is this topic of fasting. And what is fasting? It is temporarily abstaining from food for religious purposes. That would be a simple defini definition. Fasting is temporarily abstaining from food for religious purposes. 
And we see John's disciples and the Pharisees, they were fasting. And in fact, fasting was commanded, Israel was commanded to fast once a year on the Day of Atonement. And we see that in Luke chapter, not Luke, but Leviticus chapter 16, verses 29 through 31. And they fasted as a sign of repentance. You see, fasting, it was also common during the day. We see David fasted in 2 Samuel chapter 12, or there was a fast in the book of Esther. You see, people, they fasted for different reasons, as they were either lamenting over tragedies, or they were fasting in times of crisis, or it was self-imposed for other reasons. But the thing about fasting is that it was commonly associated with sorrow and mourning. And it was a normal outward expression of one's hunger and longing for the presence of God. And so in our passage, we see John's disciples and the Pharisees fasting. Now, it could be because they're grouped, they're combined in this verse, could be easy to think that, man, they're friends. But that couldn't be further from the truth. (laughs) Like, man, John, John the Baptist actually called out the Pharisees, called them a brood of vipers, and told them to repent. You see, they're fasting, but they're fasting for different reasons. You see, John's disciples, they were fasting as they were, yeah, they were fasting as expression of, of repentance and, and longing for the coming redemption. Whereas the Pharisees, they were fasting to demonstrate their devotion and consecration to God. It was very common for the Pharisees to fast twice a day, so much so that in the parable of Luke 18, uh, that, that the, the Pharisees said that I fast twice a day. And so they questioned Jesus. We don't know who questioned them, but a few people come and they're questioning Jesus, saying, like, why ain't your disciples fasting? And the reason that the disciples ain't fasting is because their disciple leader ain't fasting. You know, Jesus ain't fasting, so the disciples ain't fasting. And so there's a, more so a question also getting at Jesus, like, what's going on here? Like, John's disciples are fasting, the Pharisees are fasting, people who follow them are fasting, but your disciples, you, y'all ain't fasting, what's going on? Well, Jesus answers their challenge. He answers their question. Look at verse 19. He said, Jesus said to them, the wedding guests cannot fast while the groom is with them, can they? As long as they have the groom with them, they cannot fast. And so he answers their question by talking about a wedding. And what he does in his answer, he reveals something about himself. You see, it, is, it was unthinkable and disrespectful for wedding guests to fast during a wedding, during the presence of the groom. It's because fasting, again, as I said earlier, fasting was associated with mourning, with lament, Whereas a wedding is associated with celebration, feasting. You see, you don't fast or mourn at a wedding, but rather you turn all the way up. You party like it's 1999. I'm just kidding. That's a song. But you, like for real though, you really do party at a wedding. You feast in celebration of two people becoming one. And in fact, this celebration, it lasted for an entire week. And so you don't mourn. You celebrate. You party. And what Jesus is saying here is like, man, now is not a time of mourning, but rather it is a time of turning up. It is a time of feasting. And the reason that he says that is because he says the groom. And it's very interesting. He likens his presence 
on earth with his disciples as the presence of a groom at a wedding. And he self-identifies himself as the groom. He says it three times in, this ver- in these two verses about the groom. And what's interesting about this is that because there's no Old Testament reference about the Messiah being the groom. But rather the Old Testament does mention and disclose that the Lord himself, the covenant-keeping God, that he is the bridegroom of his people. As we read earlier, Isaiah chapter 62, verse 5, and you read on your own time, but Hosea chapter 2, 19, makes known that the Lord is the bridegroom of his people. And Jesus, he is declaring himself to be the bridegroom. And this is true of Jesus because he is the Son of God. He is God the Son incarnate, God in the flesh. Mark has already made this known in chapter 1, verse 1, where he says the gospel, beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He's already revealed the identity of Jesus, that he is the Son of God. And in fact, in Jesus' baptism, the Father himself spoke of the Son that very thing. He says, you are my beloved Son. And so Jesus is impl- making known explicitly, though, it's imp- like he's making it known. They probably didn't catch it, but that he is the bridegroom. He is God in the flesh. And because he's the bridegroom, now is not the time to mourn or lament or fast. But now is the time to celebrate and feast because God is present with his people. So he is the the bridegroom, and his disciples are the wedding guests. You see, it ain't time to mourn, but it's time to celebrate, because God is with his people. And though he is with them, he won't remain with them too much longer, because look at verse 20. It says, but the time will come when the groom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast on that day. You see, he won't remain present with them too much longer. And what, this is, what he's saying, what he's getting at right here, it is a, a veiled declaration of his death. You see, he is fully aware that he will die and is central to his mission. You know, Mark chapter 10, verse 45, he says, the Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. And did you see the, the passive language in this very verse? He says, the groom will be taken away. You see, the religious leaders, they will forcefully come to him and arrest him and take him away to be crucified on that tree where he bears the curse of sin and suffers the wrath of God for the sins of his people. And he will redeem his people through his shed blood and resurrect from the grave and and, yeah, then he'll be with his people. But he also says that, you know, his people, they will fast on that day. You see, on the day that Jesus Christ is taken away, the disciples will mourn, they'll be sorrowful, but then they will see him again and their sorrow will turn into joy because he will be with him. Well, he will be with them, but then he will also ascend to heaven. And we're to fast. This is why we fast, because we long for the return of the groom. In fact, in John Piper's book, Hunger for God, he says this, that we fast based on the fact that the bridegroom has come. You see, our fasting now is not as much a sign of mourning as it is a sign of longing. 
we long for the return of the bridegroom. Now that the kingdom of God has been inaugurated through his coming, through his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and his giving of the Holy Spirit, we are fasting because we long for more of Jesus. We have him and we want more of him. We want to be filled with him and we long for his imminent return. And so we fast. We temporarily deny ourselves food so that we may seek Christ and have more of him. To the point to where we long for the day where he returns, where he consummates his kingdom, we will be in his benevolent presence for all of eternity. Now, it doesn't necessarily always have to be food that we fast from. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 5 makes known that married couples, they were to fast from sexual intimacy and devote that time for a time of prayer. And as Martin Lloyd-Jones said, fasting should really be made to include abstinence from anything which is legitimate in and of itself for the sake of some special spiritual purpose. So as we fast, as we abstain from food or whatever it is that we are abstaining from, we are to seek the Lord as we fast. You see, Jesus, he expects his disciples to fast. Did you see it? He said, they will fast on that day. In fact, he taught his disciples to fast. Remember the Sermon on the Mount? Matthew chapter 6, verse 16, he says, when you fast, and he teaches them how they are to fast. And fasting, it is probably the spiritual discipline that is most neglected. You know, um, it's common, it's not common for us to talk about. You know, we normally talk about praying, reading God's word, scripture memory, a number of personal spiritual disciplines, but it's rare that we actually talk about fasting. And if we're honest, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if many of us don't fast. And if we're honest, why don't we fast? Could it be that we're probably not hungering and longing for the return of Christ? Could it be that we're probably not longing for more and more of the Lord Jesus? You see, as I was studying this passage, I was convicted because it's been a minute since I fasted. It's been a while. And I'm just like, man, it serves as an indicator that I'm a little bit complacent in my spiritual walk with the Lord. I'm not hungering and thirsting and longing for more of him. And so, man, will you guys pray for me in this, that I would discipline myself to be more regular in fasting, not to earn God's approval but because I've been justified and because I have Christ, that I have to long for more and more of him. And friends, if you are like me and you haven't fasted in a while, I would encourage us to begin to make this more a part of our regular spiritual disciplines. And if you haven't fasted or haven't fasted in a while or haven't fasted ever, I would say start small. You know, maybe abstain from one meal and replace that time with prayer or reading God's word. And as you get more regular in that, you become, yeah, you feel like you can do that, then maybe go two meals. Or maybe go, then potentially go the whole day. But start small and begin to do that. And it may be good to not just do it alone, but it may be good to even do it in community. Where you reach out to other members, hey man, I'm thinking about, I'm thinking about fasting, I want to seek the Lord on this. Like man, will you fast with me? So just for encouragement. Now if they say no, don't scold them in any way. They're not necessarily in sin. They don't necessarily want to fast with you in that moment. But, like, man, it's 
probably more encouraged to seek the Lord all the more, knowing that other brothers or sisters fasting with us. And friends, pray for our church in this, that we would be a people who fast. Not about to be legalistic and, and set uh, a frequency in fasting, but just pray that we will be a people who fast because we long for more and more of Christ and we long for the return of the bridegroom. You see, Jesus, but in this context right here, what Jesus is saying is that now is not the time for fasting, but now is the time for feasting. And he continues his answer in, in verses 21 and 22, where he gives two short parables. And in these, in these short parables, what you will see are repeated words like old and new, wine and wineskin. Look at verse 21. He says, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new patch pulls away from the old cloth and a worse tear is made. You see, it is inappropriate to take a brand new cloth and sew it on an old, worn-down garment. Because what will happen is when it is washed, that new cloth will shrink and rip away from the old garment. You see, the new, then the new cloth will no longer be valuable. And then he goes on in verse 22. He says, and no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is lost as well as the skins. No, new wine is put into fresh wineskins. And it's the same with wine. You see, if you place new wine into old wineskins and mix it, you lose the new wine. Why? Because the, as the wine comes in, it begins to ferment, it expands and it would explode. And when it explodes, you lose the new wine. So what you do is you place new wine into new wineskins. Well, what is Jesus getting at right here? Well, like a, a square peg can't fit into a circle hole, what Jesus is saying is that you can't attach him to re, uh, religious practices. You can't attach him to the religious practices of John the Baptist, and you can't attach him to the religious practices of the law or the law plus tradition. You see, John's ministry, it pointed forward to Jesus. Well, Jesus is here. And so you can't add Jesus to all that John is doing. In the same way that you can't add Jesus to the law because the law pointed to him and he came to fulfill the law. And you can't attach Jesus to the law plus tradition. Well, if you try to do that, what happens is that you lose Jesus. You lose the gospel. The book of Galatians is very much clear in this. That you try to attach the gospel to adherence to the law for means of justification, then you lose the gospel. You are not saved. And so what Jesus is saying is that you don't attach him to those religious practices. But rather, what he's doing, he's bringing about a new way. You forsake those and you embrace him and what he is bringing about. You see, what he is saying is that this religious belief of coexist, it cannot exist. But rather, you get rid of that. You get rid of those traditions and you follow the Lord Jesus. You forsake those and you cling to him. This is what he is getting at. And so this is a call to forsake all, to forsake traditions, to forsake, you know, trying to adhere to the law for justification. You forsake all of that and follow Christ. Embrace him and him alone. Follow him and follow him alone. Trust in him and trust in him alone. 
Not him and something else. Not him and your morality. Not him and uh, keeping the law. But him and him alone. And as we do this, we'll be brought into right relationship with him through faith in Jesus. We'll be called a friend of the Lord Jesus. And on that day when he returns, we will feast with the Lord Jesus. So may we embrace him and follow him all of our days. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the grace that you've shown us in Christ, the grace in you sending your own son to save us as he came to call sinners to repent and bring sinners into his kingdom. Father, we praise you that he has come and we long for the return of the bridegroom. God, knowing on that day we will feast with our king. We will feast with the groom to where we will mourn no more. We will lament no more. There will be eternal joy because we will be in your benevolent presence. Oh, Father, help us to long for the day of Christ's return. Guard us from being distracted in this world. May we hunger and long for more of Jesus until we have him in full when we see him face to face on that day. God, we pray that that day will come soon. Come, Lord Jesus, come. It's in his name we pray. Amen.